Well, it was two years ago to this very Sunday <laughs> that uh, was the last time we were down here, and I sent a, a message out to the church. I remember sending a video out to Redeemer and saying, hey, everyone, I've been in communication with the community center, and we're going to be off for a few weeks, and then we'll be back. And so I thought it would be three or four weeks. It ended up being 104 weeks. Uh, I missed it by that much. I feel like if my high school math teacher was here, he'd be like, relax, Paul, you've been off way more than that. Um, it was actually pretty close for you. We've been going through First uh, John, uh, his letter to encourage the church to have joy in a world that is constantly draining our joy. But I'm going to pause for that this morning as I was thinking about you and the return and, and uh, in prayer about uh, the significance of being back in the city. We're going to take one week to just reflect on, on our call to the city, the goodness of the gospel of God's grace and our mission. So our text for this morning is Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother and the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. And he entrusted the letter to Eleazar, son of Shapa, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carry into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is God's word. Exile and homecoming is a massive theme that spans Genesis to Revelation. And it's critical that we understand that the people of God have always been exiles. We will always be spiritual exiles. Many regions of the world, being the exile is far more than simply being spiritual. It's very 
tangible and palpable and affects lives, but we are exiles. And if we do not understand our posture in the city as spiritual exiles, we are going to position ourselves towards the city uh, in ways that are not congruent with the heart of God for the city. We will either see ourselves as victims of the city, victims of the culture, constantly a victim to something that's getting legislated that's against our values. We're going to be we're going to have a total victim mentality in the city. Or we are going to wage war on the city and on the culture. And we're going to be combative. And we're going to be prickly. And we're not going to be winsome in the way that we speak about anything. And our, wit- our witness will not be attractive. And before we even have an opportunity per- to perhaps defend some of the difficult values that we hold as Christians, we won't have those opportunities because we quite simply won't be in the conversation. So we must understand that the people of God have always been exiles, and this enables us to not act like victims in the city, not wage war on the culture, but to be ministers of the gospel, bold and unapologetic about the lives in which we lead, but tender and caring, and uh, people of of service with cross-shaped lives. I want you to notice that in this text, if you look at verses 2, that the, the people who are brought into exile, specifically that are listed there, they're like they're the skilled workers and the artisans and the, the people of influence and, and, and power are, are brought into um, you know, are brought into exile. The court officials and the priests and the leaders and the, the royals of Israel. And why is that? It's because this is what the strategy of war has always been. If we take all of the um, all of the skilled workers or the professional classes or, or, or folks of influence and we integrate them into our society, it only takes one or two generations before the people of God will forget their ways and forget their history and forget their culture and forget their God and forget their worship and essentially be assimilated into Babylon. So that's all very strategic. This is what's always happened in war. It's what continues to happen in war. You take the, you take the quote-unquote cultural cream of the crop, make them yours, and hopefully in a few generations you've essentially eradicated this people group. So that's what's going on there. And the reason why this is significant is because most of the people of Israel didn't all move into Babylon. So when you envision them coming into Babylon, what you have to envision is they took the skilled workers and put them as slaves in Babylon, but everybody else was settling in the outskirts. They weren't moving into the city. And so God, in a shocking contradiction to what you would expect, actually commands them all to move into the city. And so the, 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 there is tremendous significance in this call. I think there's uh, implications for us as a church, all churches really, but as we, rem- as we celebrate our return to the city and our desire to be in the city. And you notice as well that um, he says, you know, don't listen to the prophets that are coming and saying false things to you. The entire chapter before this is actually the context for that. A prophet comes and he says, hey, God is going to get us out of here, guys. I know we're on the bottom now, but God is going to get, we're going to be on the top, so don't get comfortable. And God says, actually, that's totally false. Get comfortable. Not spiritually comfortable, not not, not morally comfortable, but relationally, get comfortable. Move in. Don't don't stay on the outskirts of the city and create your, your little bubble and hold your nose and say, the city stinks. Move in. This is the posture of the, of the exile. 
This carries through to the New Testament. It's all over the place. The tone in Philippians of dual citizenship. It's the tone in Thessalonica. What do we do? We're being, you know, the, we don't know how to relate to the culture. It's, it's through Romans, Romans 12 through 16. Move in to the city. So significant. So this morning I want to look at three things um, from this text. Because you know, as you know, you can only ever pull three things to, from a text. Um, there's not more. There's not four. There's not five. There's only three. Um, for those of you new uh, to the scriptures, that was a joke. Uh, I only do three because I'm, I'm limited in my capacity to remember things. The first thing I want us to look at is um, that we are called to live life on mission in the city. The second thing is that we are to live as disciples of Christ, not disciples of the city. And then the third thing is we're to live as ministers of the gospel of compassion, not religious contempt. So first, living life on mission in the city. Don't withdraw in contempt from the city. So he says, make this your home. Have children. And the interesting thing about this call is they can't relate to it like they're in Jerusalem. When, they, when, when the Davidic kingdom was in power and the people of God were, you know, culturally speaking, on top, and by on top I mean... The laws of God were what dictated life for the people of God and life in Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem. So you, when, you're, when you're not in Jerusalem, you can't relate to life like it is Jerusalem. And so they've got an interesting call here to live in a pluralistic society where they're not worshipping these pagan gods. They're not worshipping the god of Marduk. They're not following their practices. They don't believe that they have a completely different way of life. Um, they're not the dominant power. So God doesn't say, tear down the idols, find the temple of Marduk and stand out in front of it and just preach against it, stand in the street and condemn it. Like, it's just not there. And the reason it's not there, it's never, the reason it's not there and the reason it's not there in the New Testament is because our homecoming is, homecoming is coming. And that is coming with the return of the king and not before. You see, all of Israel's history is not like some sort of like, well, if we only obey the laws of God and get it together and then we can rise back up on top and, and return it. Like, the plan was always Jesus, which means God knew in his divine wisdom that the people of God were never going to follow his laws and follow his ways and bring back the glory of the Davidic kingdom and political Israel. Like, it was not ever in the cards. He kept calling them to obedience, but he was calling them to this as a way of showing them their radical need for a savior. One who would come and live the life that we can't live, love the perfectly loving life that we fail to live, walking in mercy and justice and transcendence and tenderness and all the beautiful things that Jesus is. Like that was always the plan. And so that's why in this context, at this point, when they're brought into the captivity of Babylon, because there's always a Babylon, Rome is the new Babylon, and every society has had a quote-unquote new Babylon. Whatever government power is throwing their weight around is the new Babylon. This is how the world has always been. It's how it will always be. And as believers, as Christians, if we don't understand this, we will get swept away in the cultural narrative of, I'm not even going to call it Christianity, I'm going to call it modern political evangelicalism, where politics and the Bible get together, they have a baby, and the baby's always ugly. It's always ugly. The baby never resembles Jesus. The baby never sounds like Jesus. The baby's ugly. Because the baby wants to stay outside, either stay outside of the city and spit at the city, or wants to stand in the city and constantly condemn the city. But we're, 
we are called, just as these exiles, here in modern day as spiritual exiles, to move into the social fabric of the city, not relate to Kitchener-Waterloo like we're tourists, not use the city to sort of build a life of comfort and enjoy wealth and whatever it is we can sort of suck out of the city and like sort of build a comfortable life until Jesus returns, you know, which is probably not going to be in our lifetime. I could be wrong, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I mean, we're, we don't, we're not tourists. We're supposed to move into the city and just become a part of the social fabric of the city. Build houses, plant gardens, this whole picture. We don't just create little bubbles where it's like, well, we have redeemers where we go to church and, oh, your kid wants to play hockey. Well, we have a redeemer hockey team. Oh, you want to go to school? Well, we have a redeemer school. Oh, you want to, uh, you know, you want to play frisbee. You have a redeemer Christian frisbee thing. We got to get the tire changed on your car. We've got redeemer Christian mechanics. Dude, they, they, they change tires in a Christian way. What? And so at the end of it, we become so proud of ourselves that it's like, yeah, everybody that uh, oh, I'm just in business with is, we're all believers. Isn't that great? Well, I don't think so. Move into the social fabric of the city. Quick caveat, because I'm going to get emails, because I always get emails. <laughs> of course, we can encourage one another, our brothers and sisters, and support one another's businesses and everything. End statement. But we, we, we move into the social fabric of the city. Now... This continues on this theme. First Peter 1, Peter refers to the church as these exiles, the diaspora. The book of James calls them resident aliens. You see it all through the New Testament. It's the same sort of idea. I want you to notice verses 1 and verse 4. If you look at verses 1 and verse 4, verse 1 says Nebuchadnezzar led them into exile. And verse 4, God says, I led you into exile. Question, is God confused? Next question, who led the children of Israel into exile? Political and militant powers, or was it God's divine plan to bring judgment on the ways in which the people of God totally forsook God, did not worship God, and ran off another gods? Who was it? Was it Nebuchadnezzar, or was it God? Answer, yes. This is the way, of course, that it continues to be, where God is not in the business of winning elections, and God doesn't have, like, vote for this guy, this is the candidate Jesus would back. It's that constantly throughout all of history, God moves sovereignly and uses all manner of government, governments that don't resemble him, governments that are nothing like him, for his good saving purposes. He has always done this. He will continue to do this. And this ought to give us confidence to live as the people of God, worshiping him, walking in his ways, bending our knees to the wisdom of his word, walking in the obedience of Christ, because... We are the children of God who do not need the safety and the security of the city because we already have a king. So we move into the city with this kind of confidence. This is what God is calling them to do. They're not supposed to just buy their time until they overthrow Babylon. The church today in Kitchener-Waterloo, we're not just like, oh, we're just biding our time until we get enough people in political power. And then they re-legislate everything. And we all say, yay, we know the city reflects our Christian values. This is a, that is a frustrating and tiring and sad way to view the call of the church in the city. Praise God when things get legislated that are congruent with our view because the wisdom of God is good for human flourishing and so to the degree that the city reflects the, the, the values and the wisdom of the glory of God, praise God for that. But when it utterly abandons them and everything goes on fire morally and things are nothing like we would understand the way that God would guide our lives, praise Him. We're spiritual exiles. We're not moved. We're not going to lose sleep. 
We're not going to spend our lives shadow boxing and, and trying to fight everybody on the internet. We don't need to do this. We can move into the city, the social fabric, and love our neighbors. And so this is the heart of God, the goodness of his, his grace and his wisdom. You see this carry in the New Testament. Romans 13, this unapologetic call to submit to governing authorities. The most unpopular passage in the last two years to preach. A passage which was formative for our presbytery and the way in which we would handle this disaster of COVID. Not because the government gets everything right. Not because public health has a crystal ball and gets everything right. But because the explicit call of the church is to submit to governing authorities in so much as they're not calling us to abandon the ways of God, which they did not, or stop me from preaching Jesus, which they did not. They have welcomed me back into a municipal building, which many cities do not do. I don't know how much longer we'll be permitted and allowed to be here, but we'll enjoy it while we can, won't we? So these, these calls, the posture of the church, are calls of tremendous freedom. Paul continues this again. You see, in, 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 uh, in the new Babylon, under Rome, under Nero, when he was writing that, obey the governing authorities. I wonder which governing authorities he's referring to. Nero. That's who he's referring to. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. Right? To the Greek like a Greek, to the Jew like a Jew. When in Rome, baby. That was a paraphrase. But that, that's what the apostle says. I'm so free from everybody. I'm, I can be a slave to everybody. I'm so free from everybody, I can serve everybody. Radical cultural flexibility. The ability for the church to move in, become a fat part of this fabric of the city. It goes without saying the Apostle Paul is not compromising his, his ethics as it relates to the sanctity of life. Sexual uh, purity and the wise guidance of God's word as it relates to our sexuality. These sorts of things. Uh, you know, care for the poor. Where in Rome, you know, the poor were like tools and they were, you know, at that point, grace and charity was not a thing in the culture. That was something that came much later as a result of the life of Christ. So these things are all given as a picture of living life on mission in the city, even to the New Testament church. Let's move on from living life on mission to the city. Secondly, live as a disciple of Christ, not as a disciple of the city. And so when you move into the social fabric, we are called now, whether you're on campus or you're in your office or you're you're in recreation, we're called to commend, you know, the values of the city that are incongruent with the love and the grace of God, commend as much as we can, partner as much as we can, work shoulder shoulder to shoulder for the good of the city, caring for the poor, the outcast, the downcast, the one with no voice, the refugee, work together as much as we can, commend them whenever we can, and challenge them when we must. Make make no apologies for needing to challenge ideas when we must. I've had to do that, I, I, I am in that all the time. But there's a way in which to do that that is winsome, and it begins with the love and the care of the city being bought in. But if we're not in the social fabric of the city, if we don't love our neighbor, know know the names of our neighbors, if if we've not invested in caring of our gifts and abilities to make our neighborhoods a better place to live because we live on that street, then we're not in the conversation. Nobody at the Christmas party cares about your views that contradict their own. Has, have any of you in the last two years of COVID had particular views on certain things and had family members or friends who had 
contradictory views on those things. And then you tried to sort of explain your view and you found it a little difficult to win people over? Of course, it takes a long time to win people over to things that they have, are convinced of. And so, spiritually speaking, as exiles, we've got to be in the conversation. And the only way to be in the conversation is to actually love people. So, we live as disciples of Christ, but we're not disciples of the city. Verse 10, I'm going to summarize it, but if you look at verse 10, he's, God is saying something amazing. Make this your home until I bring you home. Redeemer, this is us. Make this your, this is not, our, this world as it is is not our home. This city as it is is not our home. There's too many things that are broken and tragic, bring tears to our eyes. This world as it is is a paradox. It is beauty and horror all wrapped up in one. It has always been beauty and horror wrapped up in one, and it will always be beauty and horror wrapped into one. I know there's always someone who says, we can change the world. Smarter, most powerful people have not changed it. There's high points, to be sure. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not saying just grit your teeth till Jesus comes back. I'm saying we move into the city, we love people, we care, we live life on mission, but we sit in the reality that this is not our home. So we can't be disciples of the worldview. We can't just have the wisdom of the age and a non, non, non-stop stream of podcasts into our brains and books and blogs and everything else in such a way that we become so um, acclimated to the culture that we become numb to the ways in which it contradicts the very wisdom of God, the flourishing God. In fact, when you become a disciple of the culture, you sit back and you go, huh, I'm not sure God is good or loving or wise. Well, these particular teachings seem to be antiquated. I wonder if we ought to kick the ladder out and reevaluate all of the teaching of Scripture. This is where this has always led. It's where it inevitably always leads. It's, it's easier to live on the outskirts and be like, we're not going to be a part of the city. We're just going to have a little Christian camp out here. That's easy. And it's also easy to move into the city and then acclimate to the city and become a disciple of the city and then invent this new thing that we're sort of calling Christianity. But at the end of the day, all of our ethics and values are precisely the same as those who don't name the name of Christ and don't worship Christ and don't love his word and love his ways. But it's kind of like, well, all of our ethics are congruent, but I have an appointment on Sundays that I keep at 1030 and I go to church. But beyond that, there's no difference. Both of those things are easy, but we're called a different way. We're disciples of Christ, not the city. And this means to love his word. But we don't love his word out of some sort of a religious mechanical duty. Many of us have grown up in homes like that where it's maybe been a drudgery as a child. And so the knee-jerk reaction is, well, I don't want to be that kind of a parent. So now my idea of Christianity is we never pray. We never read the Bible. We worship if we feel like it. And the problem with that is that is also a doctrine and, a, and, and formative. It's just that it's terrible. It's not liberating. Because we become disciples of the city. And the reason I say that it's not liberating is because the ways of the world at the end of the day did not bring the peace and the calm to the depth of the human soul, which is what all of us long for, that is only found in the wisdom and the goodness of God. And so we're called to be these ambassadors of the city. That language is used in the New Testament. An ambassador lives and is familiar with a kingdom and is appreciative of the culture and speaks the language and knows all the customs 
like an ambassador is like all in and really gets the people. And the ambassador is actually representing another kingdom. That's why they're there. So we are ambassadors in Kitchener-Waterloo. We move in and we love our neighbors and we do business and we are in the schools and our kids are playing sports or whatever they're up to. And like we're just, we're all in. We love them and we care for them. But, we, but we're representing another kingdom. We already have a king. Politics is not our king. Economy is not our king. Wealth and money and toys and shiny things are not our king. Health in our bodies is not our king. The Pinterest perfect house, vacation, toys, body. It's not our king. We have a king. So we can enjoy all good things without elevating any of them, giving them a coronation ceremony, and basically worshipping the gods of the city. Because we're not a disciple of the city. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls us a city on a hill. And so essentially the church is we are a city within the city. That's why many churches have been given the name New City. That's why there's so many churches named New City. It comes from 5th century Augustinian theology, one of the church fathers, North African, uh, North African church father, Augustine, wrote a book, uh, well, it's a work, called City of God, 22 volumes. And he's talking about the, par- the, the, the paradox, the difference between the city of God and the city of man. And so we are called, Redeemer, here in this city, to be the city of God. I'm going to read an excerpt from book 14, from Augustine's work. Two cities are formed by two loves. The city of man founded on the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The city of God founded on the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The city of man lifts up its head for its own glory. The city of God says, Thou art my glory, and the lifter of my head. In the city of man, the people are ruled by the love of ruling. In the city of God, the people serve and love one another in love. Babylon had gods, Rome had gods, every new Babylon has gods, our city has gods. I understand there's two universities here and we're, uh, you know, the quantum valley of North America and this is a secular city, but we have gods, if I could use that language. If you're here this morning and you are not a person of Christian faith and you're exploring, considering, wondering, and you might wonder why I would even use religious terms like saying we have gods, what I mean by that is to worship is to center If you're a worshiper, you center your life around something. You wake up in the morning and you say, this is what life is about. That is worship. Religion is rhythm, pattern, practice. The way in which we organize our life, our thought, our schedule, our rhythm. We build it into our lives. We say, these are the things of value. We build these things in. Attention to my health, my education, the growth of my business, the education of of children, if you have children, if you're a single person, the ways in which I thrive and am successful. And I'm esteemed in the city. The patterns, the practices, this is religion. Every city has gods. We have gods here. We have gods here that we worship, that we say, if you will worship this god, this god will give you a name. A name in the city. A name with your peers. A name among your colleagues. This is the god that names you. This is the god that provides for you. This is the god that gives identity to you. And and so for us as believers... We recognize that we already have a king. We already have this God. And so we don't worship at the altar of the same God, but we love our neighbors, those who are in this place. 
And so in order to do this, in order to not be disciples of the city, we need rhythms and patterns in our life. There's a rhythm and pattern in our liturgy on Sunday morning. It's the, it's the rhythm and the pattern of the gospel. God calls, God cleanses, God communes, God commissions. Every Sunday, it's liturgical, it's intentional, it's the same, it's gospel-shaped. God calls us from darkness to light. God cleanses us from all of our sin by His grace because He is faithful and we are not. And He cleanses us from His grace. And then He doesn't leave us there. He communes with us through His Word, His Spirit. He does reform. He does renewal. Our appetites are renewed. We begin to love what He loves. And then He commissions us. And we go into the city to love our neighbor. And it's not just the church Sunday morning that has liturgy. Your life has liturgy. You may say, oh, yeah, but I don't, we don't regularly read and, and pray in our home. Well, then that's your liturgy. Then that's how, you raise, that's how you're raising your children in Babylon then. You're letting the culture disciple them. I have good news for you. We have all failed miserably at this. I've failed miserably, miserably at what I'm saying. But there is forgiveness and repentance as we realign and say, oh, God... Help me to love you and love your ways and to put a rhythm in my life so that I could just move into the fabric of this city without being discipled by it. Help me to teach my children to love you and love your ways so that they can love this city and they can flourish with their gifts in this city and be a gift to this city without being a disciple of the city. In our home, dinner time is a natural pause. So as we raised our kids, dinner time was when we have the conversations, read the scriptures, pray, whatever. At your house, maybe that's not the time. Maybe it's morning or evening or some other time. You figure, you, you, you figure out what that looks like for you. And as our kids have grown, that changes in a greater discussion and greater debate as you discuss their lives in high school and their lives in post-secondary until they moved out and all of the challenges of the world in which they're living in. And it's just sort of ongoing rhythm in the home. And maybe you're here and you're like, that's really intimidating. I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to do that. Well, you're not doing it alone. You have God's word, you have God's spirit, and you have this community. Connect in community. Have coffee with one another. Encourage one another. Ask, confess to one another. Help me with this. This has never been a practice for me. What are you guys doing? There's not a silver bullet here, but God has given us means of grace. It doesn't have to look one way, but it must look a way. Prayer and, the love of, prayer and the love of God's word and the wisdom of his word in our homes so that we can be disciples of Christ and not disciples of the city. And I close with this. We live as ministers of the gospel of compassion and not religious contempt. I want to close with verse 7. Seek the good of the city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. You know the original audience would have lost their minds when they heard that? Because the word peace is shalom. And in the English language, we don't just have... What, like we say peace, but shalom in the Hebrew is so holistic. There's this range of meaning of shalom. It means you're prospering physiologically and mentally and spiritually and physically and, 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 and economically. Shalom is holistic goodness and wellness. And the people of God would have been familiar with Psalm 22 which says, seek the shalom, pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. And they would have always been praying for the shalom, the shalom, the peace, the prosperity, the goodness, the wholeness of Jerusalem. 
praying for the goodness of our own people. And now here's God. God is saying this to them. Pray for the shalom of Babylon. Seek the good of those who aren't interested in your good. Be people of peace and love and grace and sacrifice to those who could care less for what we have oriented our lives around. Make our streets and our hockey teams and the workplace and the campus and the library and wherever you are, the groups that you're with, give yourself in those places for the love and the benefit and the service. Seek the good of the city. Seek the good of those who aren't seeking our own good. We are ministers of this gospel with compassion. We're not people of religious contempt. That's not the posture. This is like seeking the good of Babylon is like the Old Testament version of what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, 44 when he said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, persecute you. This incredible call. I was at the University of Waterloo this past week and I was doing a faith and reason event as I often do. I did a bunch online during uh, the pandemic, which was like, of course, you know, terrible. Everybody hates Zoom. We get it. But you know, there were scores of students that were still willing to do this thing and have atheists or agnostics in the chat putting questions in and putting me on the hot seat. And last week, thank God, I was able to be on campus. It was so much nicer. And there was a very thoughtful young man who was an agnostic and he asked a bunch of really great questions. And afterwards, I went up to meet him and he asked another really great question. He said, listen, he goes, I, uh, I don't care about religion or Christianity at all. And I'm in a, I'm in a zone where... Everybody I know, we don't care about it at all. So what do you think the church could do to reach people like me? So my answer was this sermon in 10 seconds. That we, I think a good place to begin, I'm not the oracle for Christianity, I'm the spokesperson. I think a good place to begin is that we're up to what Jesus was up to in such a consistent and meaningful way that our neighbors are like, you know what, I don't agree with anything that you believe in, but I can sure appreciate the way you love the poor, the way you care and serve, you know, in the context of our neighborhood or whatever it is that you're up to, like that you just, you're there, you're present, you love, you care. I said to this young man, like I'm saying to you, one of the reasons that the early church exploded in, in, the, in Rome, largely, whim, largely with women and, and uh, children, historically speaking, it's a fact, is because the way the Christians related to, I'm sorry, women and the poor, the way the Christians related to women and the poor was so countercultural, people couldn't wrap their minds around it. You were a sex object everywhere you went. It, it, you know, it got dark, it was nighttime, and you were fair game, because that's the ancient world. And all of a sudden you're part of a Christian community where it's like, no, 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 we don't sleep with whoever we want here. In fact, we, we don't sleep with anybody unless we've committed our whole lives economically and emotionally. And, and, and unless we've committed absolutely everything to our, uh, to our, our lives, a husband uh, to his wife, we don't, we don't sleep with anyone unless we've committed everything that we are to this person in covenant as a picture of God's covenant love for us. You know, how, you know how crazy that radical that was? And the care for the poor? Nobody cared about the poor. Second century, Tacitus wrote that the church was flocking to... I'm sorry. That the Romans were flocking to the church like children to candy 
because of the way they cared for the poor. We are called to live on mission in the city. May we be disciples of Christ, not disciples of the city. And may we live as ministers of gospel of compassion and not people of religious contempt in the city. Let's pray.